This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Interpretive Political and Social Science, a special series on the New Books Network. I'm Nick Cheeseman, an Associate Professor in the Department of Political and Social Change at the Australian National University. And today, I'm very pleased to welcome to the series Farah Godrej, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of California, Riverside, and author of Freedom Inside, Yoga and Meditation in the Castle State, published in 2022 by Oxford University Press. Farah, welcome to the series and congratulations on your new book. Thank you so much, Nick. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Farah, you begin the book by juxtaposing two views that practitioners of meditation in incarceration and who have been incarcerated have. On the one side, meditation is a way of coming to terms with one's circumstances of accepting them. And on the other, meditation opens a route to inquire critically into those circumstances and the systemic causes for suffering. You yourself say that you struggle to reconcile these two views of meditation and yoga in your own practice. So how did you go from that personal struggle to volunteering and then research in prison? What of your personal experiences and questions led you there? I'd like to begin with a story about two people I interviewed, both of whom had served time in prison. And the first person is a guy I'll call Lee, and he had served about 22 years. And he told a story that was like, that of so many other people who had done time. He described a very difficult childhood that was marked by poverty and addiction and trauma and abuse and discrimination. And by the age of 15, he had joined a gang as a way of coping with so many of these issues. And he was incarcerated by the age of 17. So when I spoke with Lee, I asked him to describe his meditation practice and what it had done for him while he was incarcerated. And here's what Lee said. He said, quote, As I got more involved with Buddhism and meditation, I realized I created my own suffering. It's a choice I made that led to all the suffering within myself. I was not accepting responsibility for my poor choices. I was blaming everybody for my suffering, but I had to blame myself. It all comes down to the choices that you make in life. That's what I got out of studying Buddhist philosophy and meditation 
the whole 22 years and six months, I deserve it and accept it because I use that time wisely to better myself. So that was Lee. Now, in contrast, I'll quote from my interview with someone named Dylan, who also grew up severely disadvantaged. He grew up in the foster care system. He bounced in and out of group homes and schools and special education institutions. He began using drugs to cope, and eventually he served about five years on substance abuse-related charges. Dylan offered a very different interpretation of meditation when he and I spoke, developed both during and after his incarceration. And here's what Dylan says. He says, meditation teaches us to see our conditioning. It taught me how to think and how to inquire not just internally, but also externally. And he says, as a result, his practice not only transformed him personally, but it also gave him what he called a moral compass to critique an unjust world. So here's what Dylan says. He says, this entire system of mass incarceration clearly causes suffering. Why do we have such long sentences? Why don't we give more leeway to folks who come from really rough backgrounds? Where did I learn that it's okay to get a 10-year sentence for having a bag of cocaine? And Dylan also said that his meditation practice inspired nonviolent resistance. He says, I became much less fearful. I would just tell the officers, no, that's not fair. You don't have a right to do this. You're not going to keep pushing me around. And the things that used to make me afraid no longer made me tremble in the same way. Now, Dylan was sent to solitary confinement multiple times for this kind of resistance, but he says, I would rather go to the hole, namely solitary confinement, than compromise my beliefs. So here we have a kind of paradox, right, between these two different views or understandings of yoga and meditation. And this paradox is really what motivated my entire project. These contrasting perspectives, right? In one case, meditative teachings seem to be interpreted as acceptance of one's external circumstances. And in the other case, they seem to cause the practitioner to sort of inquire more critically into what brought those circumstances about. So in the first case, they sort of entail the belief that your own circumstances, including and especially your own suffering, are self-created. And in the second case, they actually inspire a kind of sharper and more critical examination of how much suffering is caused systemically and collectively. This is what I talk about in the introduction to my book, and I bring my readers into not just the contradictions between these two views and the way they motivated my project, but also into my own personal struggles with this kind of paradox or contradiction. I tell readers about how I grew up in India, you know, with fairly common exposure to yoga and meditation and how I had started developing my personal practice and studying these philosophical traditions. And of course, I'm talking about a wide range of meditative traditions that emerge from the South Asian subcontinent across Hinduism and Buddhism. So I had been on a kind of personal journey which brought me to these practices and I had been reading texts like the Bhagavad Gita and the Yoga Sutras, which are right some of the most canonical texts of these traditions, and I had been training in these core principles of non-reactivity and non-judgment and detachment and acceptance of external circumstances as the way to release suffering. But as my training and my practice developed over the years, I started to notice that in all of the communities that I was engaging with, everyone was insisting repeatedly on this idea of individual transformation and self-care and self-help. But nobody wanted to talk about the inequitable social or political structures, which also cause suffering. And there was just zero discussion about the fact that not all suffering is self-created. And how might we react appropriately to institutionalized forms of suffering and oppression? So there was this really apolitical version of the teachings, which I 
increasingly found very problematic and became very uncomfortable with. But at the same time, I had also become a serious student of the Indian nationalist and political thinker, M.K. Gandhi also known, of course, as Mahatma Gandhi. And from studying Gandhi, I had also learned that this, you know, very apolitical or passive approach to these traditions was sort of incomplete. Because for Gandhi, being a practitioner of yoga or meditation actually required critique and activism and opposition to injustice, of course, in a nonviolent way, right? But definitely assertive, disruptive, disobedient, and frankly, confrontational. So I had learned that on Gandhi's view and on his interpretation of these traditions, acceptance did not need to mean passivity and that techniques for, you know, calm and internal peace can actually allow us to productively act. So all of this came together and it's what got me thinking about prisons. Why did I choose prisons as the site to explore these questions? Well, you know, a foundational premise of my book is that the prison system here in the United States is one of the most egregious sites of inequity and injustice and violence in our world. And I talk about this, you know, extensively in the book about things that I hope by now are, are familiar to many of our listeners about the disproportionate and exponentially higher rates at which folks from, you know, minority communities, immigrants and poorer communities are incarcerated, the criminalization of nonviolent offenses, the legalized discrimination and disenfranchisement that typically follow incarceration and the network of entrenched interests that profit financially from these arrangements. So I began to notice that many organizations were offering yoga and meditation programs inside prisons. But then I started to wonder, how are these practices being taught? I was wondering, were they being taught in a way that would sort of promote political passivity if they were taught as a kind of palliative tool for people to just accept and cope with their miserably unjust existence? And I had started wondering about this because many scholars and practitioners have started to express concern about how these traditions are being taught in the West. There's this concern that there is too much emphasis on the inward-oriented, individualistic aspects of these traditions, that people are being encouraged to focus only on their internal, individualized suffering, rather than encouraging people to think about the collective and systemic causes of suffering. And so I became very interested in sort of exploring how these complex forces work when self-disciplinary practices like yoga and meditation are taught inside an unjust system. Can they, in a harmful way, sort of take the focus away from contemplating and gaining awareness of systemic suffering? while unhelpfully overemphasizing individual responsibility and transformation. So those are the questions that brought me to the project. Your concern, as I understand it, is not to try to adjudicate these respective positions. Why not? Why not just come down on one or the other position? Well, the short answer is that I was led to a much less dichotomous understanding of these issues by my research participants. And so as you know, right, every scholar enters the field with a set of hunches, a set of intuitions, um, what they expect to find. And then often we end up having those hunches, those preliminary hunches or intuitions disciplined by, modified by, deepened and enriched by what we find in the field. So in my case, I tried to get at this question a number of different ways. 
I interviewed close to 60 research participants, and these were a combination of people who had either volunteered to teach yoga or meditation inside prisons, as I myself was doing as a volunteer. So they were either fellow volunteers in my local area organizations or other volunteers in different organizations across the country. But I also interviewed formerly incarcerated practitioners of yoga and meditation, people who had actually practiced these traditions and interpreted them and made meaning out of these traditions for themselves, both during and after their own incarceration. In addition to that, I also had the extraordinarily rare opportunity to do participant observation in a mindfulness meditation class inside one incarceration facility by sort of shadowing a Buddhist chaplain who was teaching this course. And finally, the other thing I had the incredibly rare opportunity to do was to collaborate with and co-author one chapter of my book with two of my students who were at the time incarcerated. And I'm happy to report that they have long since been released and have gone on to live thriving, flourishing lives. So I was trying to get at this question through a number of different interpretive methods. And it was inevitable that, you know, my perspective and my understanding of these issues really deepened and became far more complex and complicated than what I had started out with. As I began the project, I had this overwhelming intuition that emerged from my concern that these practices would be taught in ways that would sort of repeat the prison's own logic, right? That people who are incarcerated really just have to focus on improving themselves and transforming themselves because all of their suffering is self-created. And indeed, I did find that the prison system itself definitely repeats this narrative and encourages incarcerated people to internalize and repeat that narrative. So certainly that hunch was borne out. But as I spoke to more and more people, as I engaged in more and more interviews, a much more complicated picture emerged. I certainly do offer in the book two narratives, right? Two models, You call let's call them models or narratives, which encourage very different stances or ways of being in the world. And so one model, the sort of first model that I want to talk about, you know, aligns very nicely with the quotes I offered you from that first person I quoted from. It's a model that's based solely on individual improvement in which people are really encouraged to sort of accept and just cope with their situation, to see everything as emerging from their own actions and their own beliefs and to really just focus on improving themselves, right? And this is a narrative, as I say, that, you know, aligned very well with what the prison itself would teach. And there was a second model, which was quite different. And this is what I have called in the book, the more oppositional or resistant model in which both volunteers who were offering the practices and incarcerated people who were receiving the practices were interpreting them in a much more capacious way, a much more expansive way, such that, of course, the focus certainly was still on self-improvement, but it was a much richer conception of self-improvement that would foster a critique of the standard narratives that I've just talked about that perpetuate unjust systems while encouraging everyone to focus only on the individual level and instead actually giving people the tools and the resources to think in this more collective, structural, and systemic way. But the thing I end up cautioning the reader about, to to get back to the question you asked, is that these two narratives or models that I ended up offering 
were not mutually exclusive. And I found that they overlapped to a great extent. In other words, you know, this binary between docility on the one hand and resistance on the other hand was certainly useful to some extent in helping me understand the perspectives of incarcerated and formerly incarcerated persons. But I found that it did not capture the entire story. Because beyond the binary, I found a really important common theme. And that was that incarcerated people could assert a kind of internal freedom and control in the face of the continuous dehumanization and institutionalized violence that they continually faced. And so, of course, there were differences in these two perspectives or models or narratives that I've offered, but I also found that both sets of respondents were preoccupied with and able to achieve a kind of internal freedom that really defied the institution's capacity to control and define their lived experience. Thanks so much for setting out uh, so clearly those uh, two models. I think it's time for us to go into these two worlds that you oscillate between the one, the world of incarcerated people and formerly incarcerated people, and the other, the world of organizations and volunteers who bring yoga and meditation to the prisons. And let's start with the world inside, which is the world that you start with in the book. In order to get there, we have to pass through the process of getting access, in particular access associated with the participant observation component of the research, which you mentioned. Tell us about that, please. Yes, there's an entire chapter, as you know, devoted to that, uh, where I talk at length about the incredibly long onerous, difficult process of gaining access to doing participant observation inside a prison. And it's important to note that I'm really talking about the U.S. context. I know very little about prisons outside the U.S. All of my work has been uh, not just in the U.S., but in California. And so, you know, that's an important footnote to everything I say. When I say prisons, I really mean a a very specific set of prisons. So prisons are notoriously closed to scrutiny of any kind. This is something I learned very early and very quickly when I started trying to do this work. And there's really no way to learn about what happens inside a prison without getting inside. So I had to spend, I think, close to two years knocking on official doors, seeking approval for research inside prisons. But concurrently, I also saw very quickly that simply approaching the authorities, as it were, as a researcher, was not going to get me anywhere. Without having connections, networks on the ground among the people who actually do this work, I was going to get nowhere. So I joined several volunteer organizations. And of course, that's something I you know, was going to do anyway, because as you know, being an interpretivist yourself, very often we simply have to join the communities that we want to study. And so this made sense from a number of perspectives. But the other thing that joining these volunteer organizations did is that it allowed me to build the connections and networks and get to know the people, frankly, who were going to help me gain access because the prison system obfuscates by design. It is designed to be inaccessible. It is designed to make things not visible to the public. This is all by design. And so anybody who's seeking access to prisons has to really gear up for a long haul. And so there were, you know, months and months and months of endlessly knocking on doors and 
writing emails that went unanswered and making phone calls and leaving voicemails that, that all went into the black hole and eventually making the right contacts and getting to know the right people and sort of getting the machinery moving brought me to the point where I was allowed to sort of engage in something resembling what we might think of as like a set of negotiations with the correct authorities. And these negotiations resulted in a memorandum of understanding, an MOU that had to be signed between that jurisdiction, the authorities of that jurisdiction and my institution. So all of this was, you know, incredibly bureaucratic. And, you know, what I learned from all of this is that as a scholar, your access to prisons is mediated by two main bodies. One is, of course, as I've mentioned, the prison system itself, but the other is your university IRB. And it turns out that Attempting to learn about prisons and engage with incarcerated persons as a researcher presents many limitations because it requires many layers of approval that is mediated both by the university and the prison itself. And so it's very difficult to engage with incarcerated persons in any direct way because your access to incarcerated persons, the ways in which you engage with them, the ways in which you can even be with them and engage interpersonally with them is very, very severely limited and mediated by these powerful institutions. My IRB staff were incredibly helpful at my institution, but their bottom line was there's no way we can approve any research inside prisons without written authorization from prison officials. The the rub of the matter is that from the get-go, it was made clear to me that the very system I sought to study, a coercive system with a really dubious record on human rights, was itself going to be considered the gatekeeper by the very university bodies that provided the stamp of, quote-unquote, ethical approval for the research. It's really important to recognize this incredible, incredible hurdle that all prison scholars and researchers face, which is that you need approval from the very system you're seeking to study, the system which is itself deeply implicated in injustice and mistreatment and dehumanization. You have to clear that bar. And that is why we see so much research about how IRBs and their bureaucratic formalized processes end up hampering and censoring, or at the very least, complicating critical interpretive research. So that was one bar I had to overcome. So as I spent all these months and months trying to gain approval from the system itself, I found that there were so many other ways in which my access to prisons and to incarcerated persons was really severely, severely limited. So I'll just give a couple of examples. You know, there's so much to say, and so I'll, I'll, I'll try to be relatively brief. One of the most important things I, I found was that when you research and think about interpretive qualitative work with vulnerable populations, you know, one of the important ethical things for us to think about is maintaining complete anonymity of incarcerated participants. Uh, and very often that involves not getting written consent because we don't want the identity of participants to be revealed and we don't want prisons retaliating against folks for the kinds of things they may say to the researcher. But I was given no option by the prison to do only verbal consent. Prison officials were completely unyielding and absolutely insisted on a signed consent form because they were worried about legal liability. Now, this introduces so many 
problems, right? I'm a participant observation. I'm trying to observe a meditation class inside an incarceration facility, a class that's intended to be a refuge of non-judgmental quiet inside a prison, one of the few places where students are, you know, not supposed to be policed or monitored. And here I am, I have to show up produce these bureaucratic forms and require signatures and come at the students with a whole bunch of legalese, which intruded very awkwardly into that space and potentially can undermine the very peaceful quality of the one place where participants are not simply a number or objects of legal intervention and control. And, you know, I did my best to sort of navigate that encounter with my potential research participants. But you know, I'm pretty sure that these consent forms that I had to produce and sort of explain, painstakingly explain over and over again to the participants had some inhibiting effect on the levels of participation. I really understood firsthand why scholars say that incarcerated persons are often actually overprotected as a subject group with the unanticipated result of actually discouraging their participation in studies that have critical implications for their welfare. So up to 40% of incarcerated persons are thought to be functionally, functionally illiterate. And then to produce this kind of convoluted, mystifying, bureaucratic forms, I'm sure had the effect of inhibiting participation to some extent. So there were many other ways in which I found that the kind of extraordinarily rare access I was granted came at a price. They required me to make some real compromises And the compromises I had to make to get this access meant that my incarcerated research participants were the only group of research participants who could not speak for themselves in stating their needs and concerns regarding the research process. Because as we know in in interpretive research, it is really considered best for us to be engaged in a kind of ongoing dialogical give and take with our research participants over the issue of consent. But in this case, I had an institution that purported to speak for incarcerated persons to decide what would constitute protecting them and that served as a gatekeeper in that consent process. So I had to treat them, first of all, as sort of suspect in the eyes of the law, and I had to treat them as objects of knowledge rather than creators of knowledge. So these are all the ways in which my understanding of research ethics, which hinged on the ideal of you know, respect for incarcerated participants, a careful understanding of their needs and priorities, my understanding of these research ethics was totally at odds with institutional priorities. And according to IRB, those institutional priorities would have to trump everything else. This part of the book was tremendously productive for me to read and think with, and I can see myself using it in classrooms and in conversations with graduate students. Among other things, it seems like you were able to build a certain type of relationship with the prison chaplain, who you name Eric, negotiating, mediating in his own way your route through this convoluted consent process with the incarcerated participants in the meditation program. Perhaps we should get into the prison in a little bit more detail. Uh, What did you see and experience there? How did it go? I experienced a number of different prisons at a number of different times. You know, there's one entire chapter, and I think that's the chapter you're currently asking me to reference, um, which is the chapter where I shadow this Buddhist chaplain for the duration of a 10-week mindfulness course that he teaches inside one facility. 
But in addition to that one instance of participant observation, I also, over the course of almost four years, was, as I say, involved in local volunteer organizations that were offering yoga and meditation in a variety of different institutions. And so my exposure to the prison system was quite pluralistic and diverse. And one of the things I learned very quickly is that no two prisons are alike in any way, that there's a great deal of variability in the prison system. And this variability occurs not just by jurisdictions. So, you know, you have the Federal Bureau of Prisons, which runs various facilities across the country. And so those are federal prisons. You also have state level departments of correction. So in our case, the California Department of Correction and Rehabilitation, known colloquially as the CDCR. And so you have state level prisons, CDCR facilities. And then in addition to that, you have county level facilities, which are typically jails, county jails, where people are usually, although not exclusively, sent to await trial. So jails are typically where people are held while they're awaiting trial or sentencing, whereas prisons are typically where people go to serve their time once they have been sentenced. Those distinctions are starting to break down as we see more and more overcrowding of prisons here in the U.S., such that many people are held in jails awaiting trials for much, much, much longer, very often for years on end due to delays and so on. And a lot of people just end up serving their time in jails instead of, you know, being sent to prisons to serve time. So all of this to say that those distinctions I've just drawn for you are in some cases far less uh, hard and fast than we might imagine. So I had exposure to a number of different institutions thanks to the fact that I wore two different hats, as I say in the book, right? In the chapter in which I describe my shadowing and participant observation with the Buddhist chaplain, I very much wore the scholar researcher hat. That was the instance in which I was very much constrained by all of the paperwork I had signed and the agreements I had been party to and all the rules and regulations that I was being disciplined by. But in contrast to that, in my role as a volunteer, I had a great deal more freedom, as I say in the book, to engage with my incarcerated students. And so those two experiences of the prison were qualitatively different. Now, in terms of how did it go, you asked, the answer to that question really depended a great deal on, you know, in what capacity I was entering the facility. First of all, what kind of facility I was entering, in what capacity I was entering and and what I was there to do. So let me talk about that first with respect to the more quote-unquote official, let's call it, you know, the more official research that I did with the Buddhist chaplain shadowing and being a participant observer in his class. This was a 10-week mindfulness meditation class that was going to be run by the chaplain. It was taught to two different groups of participants. Uh, And it's important to note that within every incarceration facility, you have populations that are subdivided and classified and categorized, you know, by by a variety of different things, not just simply security level, which has to do with, you know, the kind of crime they're thought to have committed, but also things like their sexual orientation. So you often have LGBTQ populations that are segregated. So in my official role as researcher, I was entering a facility that was a 
a facility meant for male identifying people. Nowadays, of course, prisons are more sensitive to the increasing gender fluidity that we see in the world at large. And so you do have people who are, you know, identifying across genders or who are transitioning, but that's a whole other conversation. But in general, this was a male facility. And so in that role, I was, of course, very much circumscribed. I had to follow the chaplain around, and I only had this relatively restricted engagement with the incarcerated students. And so the chaplain and I would show up, we would undergo a whole series of entry protocols. We would then find our way through the kind of labyrinthine maze of this facility, and then we would enter the room that was set aside for us to conduct this class with our students. You know, once we got in there with our students, over the course of 10 weeks, right, there were a number of different things that happened uh, in these classes. And I, you know, I described the participants, I described various kinds of conversations that were had in these classes. But, you know, across the board, I was really just met with a great deal of respect and gratitude from all of the participants in the class. You know, I read a great deal of literature, as anybody who studies prisons must do, about prisons as places of violence. And of course, the first time you enter a prison, it's natural to feel somewhat anxious, um, because many of us have absorbed, I think, from popular culture, you know, all kinds of ideas about what it is that happens inside prisons and, you know, what incarcerated people are like. And it's important, I think, for me to say that not once in my years and years now of doing work inside prisons was I ever met with anything except absolute gratitude and respect. I'd never once felt unsafe. I always felt like I was participating in in something important and meaningful. And and I always received from the research participants and from my yoga and meditation students the the sense that our presence there was, was deeply meaningful to them. Of course, at the same time, I also witnessed a great deal of suffering and forms of dehumanization, not outright violence, but certainly forms of institutionalized dehumanization that I witnessed on a regular basis. And unfortunately, it becomes very normalized. The more time one spends inside prisons, the the more one realizes that there are just all these ways in which the dehumanization of peoples just becomes very routine. On the other hand, in my work, as a volunteer with my yoga and meditation students, which as I say, I draw a bit of a distinction between that work and my work as a researcher and scholar, I found myself relatively unfettered by any kind of institutional surveillance. And I found myself able to connect much more deeply and personally with my yoga students. And this was particularly true when I volunteered inside a women's prison. And I'm happy to report that Even though we were shut out by the pandemic for just over two years, all yoga and meditation classes were put on pause. We've actually recently resumed yoga classes uh, inside this women's prison. So in the book, I talk at length about how, despite continually sort of stealing myself for the forms of dehumanization that I had to witness every time I went inside, I also came away with just a tremendous feeling of reward and privilege to have the honor of kind of accompanying and nurturing so many students in that space. A reminder that this is the new books in the Interpretive Political and Social Science series with me, Nick Cheeseman, talking with Farah Godredge about freedom inside. We'll be back in a moment after a message from a sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The chapter on the women's prison marks quite a departure from those that precede it. You were able to conduct the research there in a relatively unrestricted way, partly as a result, you co-authored the chapter with two now formerly incarcerated people whom you mentioned in the introduction of the interview. Who were they and how did you go about getting into a working relationship with them that they ended up being your co-authors? This was one of the most exciting and rewarding pieces of this project. As I mentioned, I became a volunteer. I started to offer yoga and meditation as part of this volunteer group. And I was a member of several different volunteer organizations, not just one. And, you know, most of these organizations were sort of small, loosely based coalitions. One of them had nonprofit status, but for the most part, we were just, you know, loosely coalescing bands of volunteers. And so over the course of a couple of years, I regularly volunteered on a weekly basis inside one women's prison. I occasionally taught yoga or meditation. Uh, On other occasions, I assisted a more senior teacher. And I got to develop quite close relationships with the women in that class. Uh, That was a class where the program had been ongoing for close to a decade at that point. Now, of course, not everyone in the class had been practicing with us for a decade because many people's sentences are shorter. You have in, you know, in, in prison parlance, you have short termers, medium termers, and then long termers or lifers. And so certainly the women who were lifers had been practicing in that program for many, many years. But we also had women with shorter sentences. Among that group, I became quite close with several women. And and one day, some of them approached me and said that they wanted to start a kind of study group where they wanted to learn more about yogic philosophy and yogic values. And they were particularly interested in exploring the value of ahimsa, which means nonviolence in Sanskrit, which is a which is a yogic value, you know, that is elaborated in certain yogic texts. And they said, you know, we, we need a volunteer to kind of help us facilitate this class because of course in prisons people aren't allowed to gather together without some sort of authority figure present. And it's sort of interesting to think of volunteers as authority figures, but volunteers are typically identified as being sort of on the same side as prison staff. So for whatever reason, you know, these women approached me. It was a small group of women, about two or three women who wanted to lead the group. And they said, will you, will you join us? And I, of course, leapt at this opportunity. It was, you know, incredibly serendipitous, given that I was already immersed in these questions. I, I and, and I was very open with them in saying that, you know, I was also a researcher and I was writing a book. And this really seemed to fit very well with the work that they wanted to do. And so we started a study group. You know, I would arrive in the morning, we would have the sort of physical postural asana class. And then after the postural yoga class concluded, these women would, you know, set up the study portion, the kind of yogic philosophy study portion of the class. And I would join them and we would all sit on a circle, sit in a circle on the ground. And, you know, one of them would take the lead. And and there were different leaders at different times because the person who actually started the group was released very soon after the group started. And then other leaders took over. And it started out as the women wanting to sort of explore yogic values, but with particular emphasis on and reference to their lives in prison 
and you know how they could sort of learn these these values and principles and ideas and put them to work inside prison to make their time in prison sort of more productive and introspective. So certainly to begin with, some of the language that was being used in pitching and organizing the group was very much in keeping with, you know, that first narrative that I described to you earlier, the narrative of self-improvement. How can we improve ourselves and how can we transform ourselves? How can we make ourselves better? But I very quickly started to see that that was only the tip of the iceberg. And that as we dug deeper, I found that there was in fact a more subversive element to this group under the surface that was not immediately apparent. Because of course, nobody in prison, people in prison are smart enough when they are you know, talking about things initially, especially if they have to pitch things to prison staff, they're smart enough to know that they have to use right, the language and logic that will appeal to the prison itself. But as we got into doing the work of the study group, thankfully without any surveillance or monitoring by any prison staff, and I think that was really crucial, as the work deepened, I found that the things they were interested in were actually much more subversive. And what I mean by that is, They weren't simply interested in self-improvement and self-transformation in that very standardized way that the prison encouraged. They had more subversive messages about not allowing other people to define who we are, about defining ourselves, about loving ourselves, and about refusing the labels that are put on us. In a kind of subtly subversive way, they were pushing back against the ways in which the prison system had labeled them as broken and as sort of unworthy and undeserving. I began to be very curious about what would happen if I started to intervene and move the conversation in the group in a more explicitly subversive and oppositional direction and start asking members of the group to reflect on right, some of the larger political questions that I was interested in, really problematizing even the concept of rehabilitation, right, and the sort of baggage around ensuring that we're constantly parroting the narrative that it's only ever people who need to be reformed and not institutions. So I started introducing some of these topics. And while I found that not everyone in the group necessarily wanted to go in that direction, a couple of the group leaders really took up these ideas with enthusiasm. They became my co-authors, and their names are Raylan and Maitra. These are, of course, pseudonyms. And I don't offer any other identifying characteristics of these women, and that's quite by design. Over time, Raylan and Maitra and I developed much closer bonds, and we started to sort of engage in the act of reflection through writing with one another collectively. And so I would write some sort of guiding reflections and I would ask for their responses and they would write essays in response. And we started having a conversation in writing. They both leapt at the opportunity to have their writings be part of the book project. And of course, I had to think very, very, very carefully about, you know, what it would mean to have their writings be part of my book while they were still incarcerated and of course, this ended up being moot eventually because they were both released. And so, so that's what, you know, that's what led to the kind of collaborative set of reflections that I discuss in the book. It became moot for them, but a, a live question for ethnographers of power relations, the sort that you, you write about so evocatively in the book, and especially in this chapter, is 
what specific risks arise not only for these co-authors but for others. For instance, whether or not in detailing some of the subversive character of this reading group, given that subversion is precisely the thing that prison officials want to stamp out, it might subsequently, were it read, for instance, by a prison official, lead them to consider that, well, our institution is just better off not having these types of reading groups at all, rather than running the risk that they could go in a direction that may be subversive. So what kinds of conversations did you and your co-authors have around this aspect of the publication? This caused me many sleepless nights. Should this book land on the desk of any prison official, you know, I still worry about getting kicked out of prison because I'm still doing this volunteer work. I'm back inside now. It's, it's less about me personally getting kicked out of prison and more about the impact that it might have on these yoga programs, right? Will prison officials and administrators want to shut down or clamp down on yoga and meditation programs if they find that they have these subversive impacts? But that's a separate question from the safety of my two co-authors, right? I mean, the biggest concern when doing this kind of work is that of retaliation by the prison. And we have tons of documented evidence for how this works, right? Prisons routinely retaliate against people who are activists on the inside. Solitary confinement is used inside prisons for absolutely everything from having the wrong tattoo on your body to, you know, having said said to an officer, I'm just not going to do what you asked me to do, right? Screw you, I'm not doing that. So solitary confinement is used very widely in prisons, but among other things, it's used as, you know, retaliation to chill any kind of political speech. So that's a real concern. So of course, you know, the first thing I had to do was to consult with, you know, the two people who I had invited to be my co-authors. And we had extensive conversations. And it's a, it's a real measure of how much freedom I had inside this institution that we could have these conversations even, right? Of course, they were held somewhat quietly in a corner, furtively. They, you know, we were not shouting loudly about them, but we were able to have these conversations, which is sort of an amazing thing now that I know as much as I know about how prisons work. Now, before I say, you know, what those conversations were, I also want to say that I consulted extensively with a variety of other people. I consulted with other formerly incarcerated people I knew on the outside who had done political work. I consulted with lawyers. I consulted, you know, many of our colleagues in the kind of interpretivist, qualitative political science world. I consulted a variety of people. And what I learned across the board was you have to let people decide for themselves. As long as everyone is being really clear-eyed about the risks that are involved, at the end of the day, the decision has to be made autonomously by the person themselves. The, the best way, I think, to say it is in the words of one of the, the formerly incarcerated activists I consulted, he said, you know, you cannot substitute your judgment for theirs. I sort of thought of it as a kind of internal ethical audit. I was basically ethically auditing my own project. And the more I audited my own project and the more, you know, I consulted with people about it, it really emerged that the most important thing for me to do 
was to allow the decision to come from my co-authors um, and to be very careful in not imposing anything on them either way. And so that's what the conversation started to look like. We spent a lot of time talking about, okay, what are the risks? How likely is it, do you think, that the prison will retaliate? How likely is it, do you think, that they'll even know who you guys are if we take you know, these, these, these confidentiality measures, all of these ways of disguising your identity? And so we talked through all of that at length. And I was actually very surprised to find in these conversations that I was the worry wart, much more so than either Raylan or Maitra. Both Raylan and Maitra were like, oh, God, this is the last thing the prison is going to care about. And I said, you know, why do you think that? And they said, well, the stuff we're doing here is too subtle and it's too high level. And what they meant by that was nothing we were talking about in the work that we were doing together threatened security in the institution classically understood. Like what prisons really care about is like, are you going to cause a riot? (laughs) And what we were talking about was much more abstract much more systemic, much more political. And also we weren't naming the prison, we weren't naming specific people, and we weren't issuing a call to arms. And so it turned out in the end that they were the ones reassuring me. The impression I got is that you were the only volunteer who would have done something like this among those with whom you were engaged. There were one or two with whom you did interviews who had a political awareness that goes to the second of the two narratives that you were outlining for us earlier in the discussion. But for the most part, the volunteers, either by inclination or by their training, have this kind of studied neutrality, sort of an old-fashioned positivistic notion that it is possible not to take a side in conditions that are so saturated by violence and, and hierarchical power relations. One reason for that is because of the way that anyone who might be interested to do this kind of work is weeded out by the vetting process, both of the prisons officials, but also the organizations that are responsible for selecting and organizing instructors in the facilities where you did your research. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, there's an entire series of trainings that people have to undergo in order to volunteer in prisons. And so as you as you rightly point out, either by virtue of the trainings that the prisons offer or by virtue of the trainings that the organizations themselves offer, which are two different kinds of trainings, very often an extremely mainstream view about the purpose of volunteering in prisons tends to be disseminated. So yes, you're absolutely right that I was very much in the minority among my fellow volunteers in wanting to have these much more subversive political systemic conversations. And there are class and racial dimensions there too. And you you mentioned um, more than once that most of the volunteers were white, they're from comfortable backgrounds that may lead them also to adopt an ideological position which is broadly consistent with sort of the liberal tradition of well you know you stand on your own two feet be responsible work hard and you'll get ahead and that after all it's not as if the structures in the United States are violently racialized or targeting particular groups, but rather that you do have to just accept responsibility for what you've done and try to self-improve. Yeah, I mean, I would just say, you know, that again, when I interviewed my fellow volunteer yoga and meditation instructors, 
And I think I, I say in the book that there are about 36 of these uh, interviewees. There was, again, a kind of predominant narrative and a dissenting narrative that emerged in response to the question, you know, why teach yoga or meditation in prisons, right? And the predominant response was, well, to make people who are incarcerated better and therefore reduce crime. And so it's this predominant view that social and political change requires inner change by individuals. So we can only reform the system if we reform the people, right? So that was sort of the predominant view. And then, of course, there was, as I say, this dissenting view, which offered the yogic and meditative practices as a means to actually skillfully navigate an unjust system by preserving your sense of self. So it's not as though the dissenting view was not emphasizing inner change, of course, right? I mean, I say this again and again in the book, and I feel compelled to say it again, because inevitably people say, well, what are you against? Internal transformation? Of course not, right? That's not the message of the book. So this dissenting view by no means was against inner change by individuals, but it had a very different, a much more capacious and expansive understanding of that inner change. And it sort of insisted on situating that change within the acknowledgement of systemic injustice. You mentioned a, a few minutes ago the ethical audit that you were undertaking in doing the work on the co-authored chapter. And another dimension of your auditing work, which I really appreciate, is how near the end of the book you include a section on checking members' meanings, where you invite and record responses to parts of the book or the entire manuscript, in a couple of cases, by participants. And you mention in the appendix to the book that asking participants for their feedback was a more delicate exercise than the scholarship on member checking tends to acknowledge. Why was that the case? That was actually another very anxiety-inducing aspect of this project. And in my case, one of the more fraught elements was that, and I'm sure this is true for so many interpretivists who do this kind of work, we rely on these communities for access. In my case, this project would have gone nowhere if key players in the volunteer world, like, for instance, the chaplain, right, about whom I wrote at length in that chapter on participant observation, and several other volunteer leaders, had those people not sort of welcomed me into their world and invited me along, there would have been no book. At the same time, while they were sort of initially delighted to find a scholar or researcher who seemed interested in their work, right? And this is true of, I, I think, of many communities. There's a kind of politics of, you know, le legibility and credibility, right? That we as academics bring with us a certain authority. And when community members uh, see that we're interested in them, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes, and certainly in my case, they can get very pleased and say, oh, yes, of course, we want this, you know, professor to come study what we're doing, perhaps because they have felt under-recognized or, or not really seen. So certainly in my case, right, there was a kind of delicacy because on the one hand, I needed these key players to, to, to sort of welcome me, to give me access. On the other hand, it was also true that I became, over time, as I you know, participated and observed and became part of their world, a critical voice. I was not simply doing this research to applaud their work. I had quite a bit to say about the work that was, I think, far more critical than any of them were prepared for. So I think that there was a, a very fraught 
moment or set of moments when it became increasingly clear to these sort of lead volunteers, including the chaplain, when I you know, started writing and then eventually shared uh, with them the drafts of my chapters and in some cases, as you say, the entire manuscript, I think some of them were taken aback by the far more critical tone of the entire book. And, and this is, you know, something that I'm sure several other inter- interpretivists have struggled with, right? How much of the critical thrust of our work do we want to make known to our interlocutors and research participants, especially those who have played such an important role in giving us access to the world that we have ended up studying. So in my case, that was one of the main sort of sources of anxiety and discomfort that I had to navigate. And I discovered that it was ethically important for me to under to undertake the task of member checking so that I was fully transparent in the end with these research participants about what I was saying about them. And certainly there was some pushback, but for the most part, I will say, except for a few key lead participants, I actually did not get very much back from most of my research participants, as I think many of us have experienced, right? And that often has to do with the fact that years often pass between when we first approach our interviewees or research participants, and when we finally end up writing about it, it can be years in the interim. And so by the time you approach them, they're sort of like, I'm sorry, what? Who are you now? What was that again? Right? Yeah. Well, you felt it necessary to do that member checking, but then you also went ahead and wrote a, a section, even though it was anxiety inducing in dialogue with your participants, your research participants. So I think that's striking and something I just like to draw the attention of listeners to for anyone who does pick up the book, because, of course, another option would have just been to, to make some adjustments to the text in response to their comments. And that would have met your ethical requirements at some minimal level and yet you've gone ahead and gotten into a dialogue with them at the end of the book it was it was a fecund part of the book for me a part that really had me pausing and, and thinking about this um, way of going about your research and the ethical dimensions of it if i may say yes. i actually did both of the things you're describing i both made some adjustments to the text and that was actually in response to the chaplain yes there was some pushback i got from the chaplain that I took seriously enough that I made some, you know, sort of minor adjustments to that chapter. But you're right, more important than making the adjustments, I, I really wanted to make sure that my participants felt heard. To me, that was an that was a sort of ethical way of not making them feel so instrumentalized, like I had just used them for my purposes and sort of gone off and done what the hell I wanted after that. And we all know that, you know, all research at the end of the day is extractive and exploitative. There's just no way around that. So this felt like one way in which I could be reciprocal by not instrumentalizing them so much and, and letting them feel heard. What about your own self-care? You, you witnessed and felt on your own body something of what these incarcerated people are going through or have gone through and that led them to yoga and meditation. Were these practices sufficient for you or did you need to seek other types of support? And also leading from that question, I'll just tack on the end, uh, if you have any other advice for um, people who are thinking about or already undertaking ethnographic or participant observation in or around prisons or uh, analogous institutions, what would that be? I'm so glad you've asked this question, Nick. You know, I've now been talking about the book for almost a year, more than a year, actually. I've you know been giving talks and 
doing all manner of, of things to raise awareness about the book. And you're the first person to ask me that. So I, I'm deeply appreciative of you drawing attention to this aspect of the work. I talk a little bit in the book, not as much as <laughs> probably as I would have liked, but I talk to some extent about the affective and emotional burdens of this kind of work. And, you know, it occurs to me now that part of the reason I don't talk about it as much is that, you know, in the academy, there's still a kind of frowning upon too much affective talk, too much talk of emotions. We're still very much disciplined to speak in a kind of rationalist, if not positivist, then certainly uh, emotion-free way. And so I tried to some extent to resist that and to make clear, right, the kind of emotional burdens of this kind of work. I'm not sure how much I succeeded, but certainly you're absolutely right that it takes a toll. I actually learned more from prison ethnographers, um, people who are situated more in the disciplines of criminology and critical criminology, less so in you know political science or cognate disciplines, but more so in criminology, people who have had, of course, it's increasingly rare, but people who have had access to do ethnography inside prisons have talked about recognizing the emotional burdens of that kind of work. So to answer the second part of your question, I would actually direct many of our colleagues to look in that sort of unexpected place for help to see what those scholars, scholars who have done prison work and who have sort of openly named and called out the affective burdens, I would really recommend that scholarship for people to to take a look at because I found it tremendously helpful just to have it named, just to have someone say, let's recognize that when you go into these situations and sites of violence, you too, as the researcher, are experiencing a kind of trauma, perhaps not as harsh as what incarcerated people are experiencing. And certainly the more I learned from them, the more I saw how incredibly dehumanized they were. But it it is definitely difficult to repeatedly show up in those places. In terms of my own self-care, I will just say that my own practice actually changed a lot over the course of this book. I started practicing yoga in a very different way. And I think I had to do that in part as a response to the burdens of this work. And so what I said recently to, to somebody who asked me, you know, how did your practice change? I stopped practicing yoga in studios. I've stopped that completely. I don't go into studios anymore. I just practice on my own. And part of the reason I felt the need to do that is that, as I detail, you know, in chapter seven of the book, I started to see all the ways in which classical yoga, certainly as it was being taught in studios here in the U.S., can replicate relations of power and hierarchy and violence. And because I saw that play out in prisons, I've started to feel it in my own body in ways that I had not realized or thought about prior to doing prison work, having especially grown up in India and, you know, been part of the kind of traditional Indian classical guru-disciple tradition, I had been much more compliant toward, for instance, being touched without my own consent in a studio setting. I've just stopped going to studios. I don't like going to studios because, believe it or not, people in studio practice in the U.S. at least continue to touch you without your consent to adjust you. And all of that started to feel violent and hierarchical to me in ways that were new only after I started working inside prisons, if that makes any sense. It certainly makes sense to me, partly from reading parts of the book, which we haven't touched on, including your discussion of your attempt to introduce a protocol regarding touching in prison and how that was 
more or less ignored by the other uh, volunteers, despite the simplicity and commonsensical quality of that protocol. You are back volunteering now, you mentioned. Are you going to do any more research in prisons that is coming out of this project, or are you moving on to other things? This book has really taken it out of me. It was years and years of really painstaking work in difficult situations. So right now, I don't have a project that is sort of immediately percolating. It's actually a very different thing to enjoy being back inside with your students, just doing the yoga and meditation without having a research project accompanying it. It's actually a whole different feeling, and I'm enjoying it a great deal. So for now, I'm just going to keep volunteering. And I have some other things I'm thinking about writing about. I think the thing that I want to write about more than anything has less to do with prisons and more to do with how we write. Because what this book liberated me to do was to write in a kind of autobiographical voice, something that I had never been able to do before because I had been trained as a political theorist. And I felt very emancipated and liberated to write in a much more autobiographical, personal narrative way. So I think that's something I'll, I'll be wanting to reflect more on in writing. But for now, I think I'm feeling just very burnt out on prisons. And so I'm in recovery mode right now, to be honest. Farah Godridge, I'm so glad that you did stick with it and that we have this book and that you've had the kinds of engagements with incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people that you set out in it. Thank you so much for joining me on New Books in Interpretive, Political and Social Science to discuss freedom inside. Thank you so much for having me, Nick. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. And for me too. And listeners, thanks for journeying with us all the way to the end of this 15th episode in the series. You can find all of the other episodes on the series homepage, which you can reach by clicking the button for academic partners of the New Books Network in the top menu bar of the website. And of course, you can also hear the episodes wherever you get your podcasts via our host channel, the New Books in Political Science channel.